Welcome to the Deeper Dive podcast. Each week we take a deeper look at the text we covered in worship on Sunday. We do that by discussing things like historical settings, literary context, the way others before us have read the text, and our reflective approach to reading that same text. This podcast is a part of Calvary's Daily Connection, so we hope you check that out through Calvary's app or by going to connectwithcalvary.org. Well, today we're following up uh, on Sunday's sermon with Lloyd Hewlett, and uh, it's great to have him here uh, in the podcast. We're just going to be talking a little bit more about uh, what uh, the world looks like uh, with Christianity involved and and uh, lots of different pathways to go here today. So uh, let's, let's jump right into it. And... Uh, on on Sunday, I uh, I talked about uh, what would the world be like, and what would your personal life be like if Jesus had never been born. And in the process of talking about that, I mentioned a number of significant ways that Jesus and his followers have impacted the world, from science to medicine to the role of women in the world, uh, and then talked about. Uh, some of the ways that Jesus himself, in terms of his messages of faith and love and hope, have uh, made a difference in our lives. As I was uh, researching that sermon and writing it, uh, the phrase, the good, the bad, and the ugly, kept occurring to me because I know that there are many people who uh, have never given the church a chance or who have been in the church and turned away because their focus has been on what we might call the bad and the ugly. So I I did some some research on that part, thinking that there's probably some deeper meaning to the good, the the bad, and the ugly other than Clint Eastwood's spaghetti western movie. And what I found was uh, that there isn't. That's where it came from. It has been uh, adopted by some uh, slang vernacular to mean things that have really nothing to do with uh, the movie or even with the words themselves. Um, When I plugged in Christianity and the good, the bad, and the ugly, an article came up that sort of synthesized what I had discovered in other places. And I I, I want to read a little bit from this article that was written by Ramdas Lamb. The question that he posed was, is there a problem with proselytism overseas by U.S. religious groups. Isn't sharing one's faith part of religious freedom? When does it cross the line into manipulation and coercion? It's a great question. Um, I have uh, lived overseas a good part of my life, and much of that time was spent in countries that are uh, Muslim-dominant. But my personal life was spent with Christian missionaries. Mm-hmm. And so I, uh, I learned firsthand about the, the conflict between uh, Muslims and Christians in terms of how they conduct themselves. This author says missionary proselytism has been an integral part of the two main prophetic religions, Christianity and Islam, since early in the formation of each. He says, it is precisely the reason they are the two largest religions in the world. It is also one of the darkest and most sinister aspects of religion and one of the main reasons 
so many people have a negative view of anything to do with religion. And it, it really comes down to the idea that my religion is the only right one. Sure. And that's, that's a hard one, certainly for Christians to deal with, because right. uh, we emphasize that there is one and only one way to get to God, and that right. is through right. Jesus Christ. So it's, it's hard to have a, a sort of expansive view of the fact that there might be other ways. Right. Um, he, he also says religion is simultaneously one of the best as well as one of the most destructive of human creations. And of course, that last part leads me to believe that this is a person who probably does not um, believe in God, or at least doesn't believe in God the way I do. Right. Um, he does point out, correctly so, that more wars have been fought because of narrow religious doctrine and beliefs than for any other reasons. And Christians and Muslims have been at the forefront. Yeah. Um, I wanted to look at three aspects of the bad and the ugly mm-hmm. that I was aware of. Sure. The Crusades, the Inquisition, and the Salem witch trials. Right. What I found is that they're much more integrated than I thought they were, even mm-hmm. the Salem witch trials. In, in what way? Yeah. Well, in, the, in this sense, the, the Christian Crusades were largely a matter of trying to take back land mm-hmm. that the Muslims had acquired over a period of several centuries. Right. But <clears throat> it also included um, a, a hatred of Jews, especially yeah. Jews who had converted to Christianity, but the Christians didn't trust that the conversion was real. Right, yeah. And uh, that was definitely a part of the uh, Inquisition, where there were groups that were targeted. Right. For I didn't know, for example, that at one time there were 150,000 Muslims in Spain. Right. And of course, it's the Spanish Inquisition that yep. gets most of the the attention. Mm-hmm. And uh, those 150,000 were either killed or driven out of Spain because the Roman Catholic Church or the Office of the Inquisition yeah. specifically. Right. Uh, did not believe that they had truly converted. Right. So there are there clearly are aspects of this that are not just bad, but are ugly. Mm-hmm. That you could uh, look a person in the eyes and try to determine whether they really believe what they say they believe. E- yes. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I found about the Crusades, and I my first attempt at this was to look at all of the major crusades. And most people believe that there were four. Yeah. There were actually more like eight. Right. Although uh, from five through eight, they didn't last as long, and they were more narrowly More skirmish, More skirmishes than, exactly. than uh, campaigns, yeah. What I didn't know, and I probably should have, is why all of this got started in the first place. So I found an article that in one page kind of summarizes all of this. And this author says, approximately two-thirds of the ancient Christian world had been conquered by Muslims by the end of the 11th century, including the important regions of Palestine, Syria, Egypt, and Anatolia. The Crusades, attempting to check this advance, initially enjoyed success, founding a Christian state in Palestine and Syria, but 
The continued growth of Islamic states ultimately reversed those gains. By the 14th century, and you know when we throw out the number of the century, it makes it sound as though the time is way more compressed yeah, than it really is. That's We're talking long. 300 years here. Yes, long time. By the 14th century, the Ottoman Turks had established themselves in the Balkans and would penetrate deeper into Europe despite repeated efforts to repulse them. The Crusades constitute, obviously, a controversial chapter in the history of Christianity. Um, the, the first crusade started in the late 11th century, and uh, the crusades continued, the major ones continued through 1291. So, uh, you know, that's, that's a long time. And uh, they declined for two major reasons, the Protestant Reformation and the decline of, of papal authority. Right. The Crusades, I think, as everyone understands, were military operations uh, that began in the late 11th century. They were organized by Western European Christians in response to what the Muslims had done in wars of expansion. Uh, their objectives were to check the spread of Islam, to retake control of the Holy Land and the Eastern Mediterranean, to conquer pagan areas, and to recapture former Christian territories. Uh, they were seen by many of those who participated as means of redemption and expiation for, for their sins. Between uh, 1095, when the First Crusade was launched, and 1291, when the Latin Christians were finally expelled from Syria, uh, there were numerous uh, expeditions to the Holy Land, to Spain, and even to the Baltic. Um, and as I indicated, they began to decline uh, because of the Protestant Reformation and the decline of papal authority. Right. Um, what I didn't realize before I did this research is how uh, complicated and uh, interconnected some of these things were. So the Crusades, was, that was one. And I, I haven't mentioned death tolls because I think that's a kind of sensationalism that is beside the point. Mm -hmm. And also because what I discovered is that the numbers are radically different depending on who you talk to. Yes. But let's just say that lives were uh, tragically affected. Yep. Many people were, were killed. And uh, obviously, it did nothing to bring harmony between the two major religions of the world. Right. As I was going through this, what kept occurring to me is what is in the news today mm -hmm. in terms of the continuing strife that exists in the Middle East and how, how much intransigence there is in this conflict between Muslims and, and Christians, which periodically, even today, erupts into violence. Mm -hmm. And there is a big part of me, Isaac, that, that weeps inside, thinking about the way God must look at this and, and wonder what is wrong with his people, that they just can't seem to get this right. So that took me to the second uh, major uh, incident, chapter in history, which is called the Inquisition. 
I think a lot of people do not understand that the word inquisition is really the name of uh, a powerful office that was set up in the Roman Catholic Church for the purpose of rooting out and punishing heresy. Right. That was its purpose. And uh, the, the reach of this office uh, extended throughout Europe and throughout both North and South America. Uh, beginning in the 12th century, and notice the overlap here with the Crusades, and continuing for hundreds of years, mm -hmm. the in Inquisition became infamous for the severity of its tortures and for its persecution of Muslims and Jews. That's when that part of the right. major religions of the world came into play. Um, its worst manifestation was in Spain, as I think most people know. But it wasn't because they were, because they had a different authority in Spain. It was just because they interpreted their oversight in a crueler way right. than in other parts of the world. Yeah. But in Spain alone, it's estimated that there were 32,000 executions as a result of this. And it was even more nefarious than the number of deaths, because part of what they did was to bring uh, to accuse people of heresy, yeah. put them on trial, and say to them, if you will confess to heresy, then uh, basically we will leave you alone. Right. And uh, many, many times they did not That's, do that. That was not they the tortured case. tortured them yep. and, yeah. and killed them. Um, I'm not sure how important it is to go into any of the, of the details here, but there was obviously no... Uh, legal support for those who were accused. Right. Uh, they weren't allowed to face their accusers. They received no counsel and uh, were often victims of false accusation. Um, there, there were in the, in the Inquisition some interesting historical figures that I came across. In, uh, in 1307, Inquisitors were involved in the master arrest and tortures of 15,000 Knights Templar in France, resulting in dozens of executions. I don't know how many that would have been. Mm -hmm. The most famous victim of all of that was Joan of Arc, right. who was burned at the stake in 1431. In the late 15th century, for political reasons, King Ferdinand II and Queen Isabella uh, believed that corruption in the Spanish Catholic Church was being caused by Jews, uh, who, to survive centuries of anti-Semitism, converted to Christianity. These people were known as conversos, uh, which seems like a fairly logical name for them. Mm -hmm. They were viewed with suspicion by old, powerful Christian families. They were blamed for a plague— uh, accused of poisoning people's water and abducting Christian boys. So, I mean, so the, yeah, uh, a lot of this just seems like it could be ripped out of the headlines yeah. of today's news. Yeah. Uh, Ferdinand and Isabella feared that even so-called trusted conversos were secretly practicing their old religion. Uh, they were afraid of angering Christian subjects who demanded a harder line against them, um, 
And so they uh, used their uh, inquisition to raise money by putting pressure on these people to give them money mm -hmm. in order to fund a crusade against Muslims in Granada. So uh, again, the, yeah. the connection between these to me was amazing. Yeah. Um, and then finally, and I don't want to spend too much time on this because I want to get to the most important question. But the third thing that I thought about was the Salem witch trials. Uh, the infamous Salem witch trials began during the spring of 1692. Now, this clearly was after the Inquisition and, and after uh, the Crusades. A group of young girls in Salem, uh, Massachusetts, claimed to be possessed by the devil and accused several local women of witchcraft. Uh, what was interesting about this uh, was that there was a study published in Science Magazine in 1976 that found that there was a fungus found in uh, rye, wheat, and other cereals that were consumed by people at that time right, yeah. that toxicologists say caused symptoms like delusions, yep. vomiting, and muscle spasms, yeah. which were exactly the symptoms that people thought were evidence of witchcraft. Right. The, the earliest uh, girls who said that they were witches because of these other people were very young. One was nine, one was 11, and they their symptoms were exactly what I just described. Uh, a local doctor who was unwittingly, I hope, kind of a, he was kind of an unwitting villain in all of this, mm -hmm. when he saw this diagnosed bewitchment. And that's what caused people to say, hmm, there must be something to this. Yeah. The girls, those girls, uh, then blamed other women who were, shall we say, disenfranchised. Sure. A homeless beggar, um, a poor and old woman by the name of Sarah Osborne. These were the women that they accused of bewitching them. Right. Now, it's kind of hard to believe that girls as young as 9-11 would figure out that by accusing women like that, uh -huh. that they would sort of... Uh, uh, vindicate themselves right but apparently they had figured that out so anyway those were the three and one of the things in fairness to any of you who are listening that i want you to know is that when i knew i was going to do this i i told isaac that the question that i want to address is how can christians avoid falling into the traps that the Crusaders and the Inquisitors and the people in Salem, Massachusetts fell into. Mm -hmm. And and I would love to hear from you first. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You know, well, I was, as I was uh, thinking about this uh, ahead of time and um, just listening to you kind of recap these three major um, shadow sides of, of Christianity, uh, a couple things came to mind. Um, the first one is that uh, these all three um, happen when Christianity moves from um, an ex a communal experience that's founded in the gathered church community to a an experience that relies on uh, nationalism or uh, gets politically involved. 
And so, uh, in all of these cases, uh, the arm of the church extends uh, not within the church, but extends to the uh, the political world. Um, you know, armies, um, organization of territories, boundaries, that kinds of things. So instead of being something that functions from the outside in, it becomes the thing in which it's mostly uh, speaking to. <laughs> um, if you look at uh, the Gospels, if you look at the Epistles, they are not uh, really promoting that um, the church set up its own government and be its own nation state. I, I mean, the concept of a nation state in first century, uh, <clears throat> the first century world would have been crazy anyway in terms of what we know as a modern nation state. But there's no uh, there's no drive to say uh, take over the government. Um, but that's what happens eventually uh, in these scenarios is that. Um, and, and I would say that the government took over Christianity, not the other way around. Um, I agree with and, that. And that's really what happens in these scenarios. People who are interested in political power um, uh, grabbing on to Christianity as a vehicle to sway uh, the masses, uh, that what they're doing is correct. And uh, most of the time they have little interest, I think, in uh, Jesus or in um the kingdom of God, or any of these kinds of uh, things that we would associate with um, the gospel. Uh, they're more concerned about, um, again, power, territory, influence, money, you name it. Um, these things become the focal point. And so when, uh, I think when the people of God get too close to um, wanting uh, political influence and power, I think one of these things is always around the corner. So I'm, I'm very concerned when uh, Christians uh, start to talk about um, God in politics at a almost uh, high zest kind of, a, kind of a level. I'm like, well, we've been there before. And it has never turned out well. <laughs> it just never has. It's it's always diluted the message of Jesus. It's always twisted it. We've always had to reset after that. So, you know, you mentioned the the Protestant Reformation. Um, Phyllis Tickle uh, has a book uh, that's called The Great Emergence, uh, which talks about these large systemic shifts in Christianity uh, over the last two thousand years. Uh, so about every 500 years, there's a major shift, and most of these, well, all of these have come because of um, the church's uh, cozying up to uh, nationalistic kinds of government entities. And so there's a reboot that happens, and then that reboot becomes the mainstream, and then there's another reboot, and that becomes the mainstream, and then there's another reboot. So, you know, in the five and six hundreds, uh, it was monasticism that said the church is too corrupt, we're going out, we're doing something else. Uh, in uh, around uh, the turn of the millennium, it was the split of the East and West. They said, you know, each one of them said the other one had been, you know, too corrupted by other kinds of interests, whether it was land, money, uh, influence, whatever. Uh, 1500, that's a major, uh, you know, a major part of the Protestant Reformation is political. It's to say we don't want to be under the Holy Roman Empire. We want to uh, lead our own countries. I mean, yes, there are plenty of theological underpinnings that, that, um, that bring that about, but the moving and shaking of, 
you know, the real onslaught of Protestantism is a political force and not necessarily a theological force. Um, the theological force gets uh, co-opted by some political um, motives. And, and not to say that uh, we should, um, you know, that, that uh, what's the word I'm looking for here, that um, we regret that. I mean, everything is what it is. And so we work, we work with what we right. have, but right. uh, what we have is there so that we don't have to necessarily do it again the same terrible right. way. Um, so that's one thing that I, that I always think of um, when I think of these uh, shadow sides of Christianity is uh, getting too, uh, too preoccupied with uh, political policy as the church. And right. I think that's uh, certainly that's, you know, front and center in in our modern day so, nation state. Uh, our founding fathers then seem to have pretty good insight about the dangers of this when directly or indirectly they talked about separation of church and state. Yes, I, I think so. I think in a very real way, um, I think they uh, experienced both the promise but also the dark underbelly of the Reformation where they were just trading uh, one... <laughs> one kind of overbearing uh, religious entity for another right. and uh, to try to create a place where uh, religion works um, outside of government uh, or uh, in addition to it or however you want to say that, but it isn't the government. Uh, I think that um, I think that's a very novel idea in the history of the world and we would do well to remember that. <laughs> um, so that that's one. The, the second one, um, I think that that always plays into these three scenarios for sure is this this very ancient um, fear of the other. You know, as humans, uh, people outside of our tribe, you know, whatever that is, right. um, we are inherently afraid of them at the beginning. And the Bible works very quickly to try to remedy that. Um, both with Israel's acceptance of the the foreigner and um, the uh, that is Abraham. I mean, Abraham is the outsider right. coming to a different place. And so, the Old Testament uh, continues on that track of saying, "You are a tribe, but you must welcome those from outside of your borders in ways that help the world." So, I'll get to that in a second. But um, but this constant fear of people who are not you or who are not your immediate family or who are not your immediate neighbors. Um, it comes up again and again in all three of these scenarios that you've talked about, that that fear of the other is there and people do not respond to it appropriately. They respond inappropriately, I think. Um, so that's that's the second one. And then I think the third one in, in these cases um, is this um, kind of blind pursuit of purity. Uh, so it's uh, people uh, set up this kind of impossible template for what it means to be uh, either in the will of God or being or doing God's work or whatever, and then they place this template on everyone, probably but themselves. Uh, but uh, but they put it up there as a as a checklist and a non-fluid, a very rigid. Um, set of things to be met. And so instead of um, uh, reasoning together, uh, they decide that this is what it looks like to be human, 
And if you are not there, then we will take care of that. Uh, so you see it in Salem with the witch trials uh, that, you know, uh, this is what it means to be uh, in our community. Definitely with the Inquisition, uh, that's where that becomes, I think, supreme uh, in terms of this is what it means to be uh, a part of this church. Uh, and the Crusades as well, that they're motivated by um, not just a fear of the other, but a uh, we need to cleanse this land and take it back um, for God. So, uh, And again, I don't think that really collates well with what we find in the Gospels. Um, that's certainly the path of the Pharisees, uh, is to pursue this ultra-pure uh, version of Judaism and... Um, you know, Jesus is their biggest critic uh, in terms of their their process of being uh, concerned with uh, this ultra pure state of right. of being. Right. Um, All of that is very very well said. Uh, I don't disagree with any of it. Uh, there were a couple of things that you said that reminded me of a couple of details that I think are interesting yeah. about this. One one is that during the Inquisition. One group that was specifically sought out were the Lutherans, yeah, and that was obviously because of Martin Luther, sure, who was perceived as a major leader right. of the of the Reformation movement. The other thing that I found interesting is that the office of the in- Inquisition still exists. Oh, uh, yeah, that probably the, <laughs> it's called the Supreme Sacred Congregation of the Roman and Universal Inquisition. Uh, It's changed its name a couple of times. Mm -hmm. It obviously doesn't operate in the same way. Sure. But as you said, there is still this fear of the other and people who don't meet our test of purity. Right. And so there are ways that this office still tries to purify people who are impure. Right, right. Uh, One of the things, and it's interesting that, that you... Your, your perspective on this was was perfect. It was historical, it was political, and I totally get that. My mind, when I thought about this, at some point shifted to what happens within our churches today when yeah. people sort of lose their way. Right. And I thought about my own conversion, uh-huh. Isaac. Uh, I became a Christian at the age of 17. Yes. And until that time, I believed that um, I was in control of my life, that uh, I did not need God's help. And because of what what for me was a really kind of a road to Damascus, kind of struck down and wake up the next day a renewed person, I thought that day when I woke up, all right, this is it, I've arrived. Jesus is, as, is at the center of my life, right. and I'm never going to have these struggles again. Yeah. Wrong, wrong, wrong. <laughs> That's just... And one of the things that I see in, in the church today is that people lose their way when, the, when they allow their human tendencies to dominate their connection to God through Jesus Christ. Yeah. Uh, there are obviously things that we can do about that, but I don't think we can erase it completely. I've often thought that God placed Paul at the center of uh, what he did in the early church for a reason, mm-hmm. because Paul really struggled with this. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was 
He was ultimately successful, of course, but uh, he knew that this conflict. I, one of one of my favorite passages is when he says, "I, I know what I should do, but yes. I don't do it." Yep. Uh, a, a kind of a personal confession to the fact that yeah. I have this split between who I am as a Christian and right. what I am as a as a human being. Yep. So, to the extent that we allow ourselves to be too influenced by the human part of ourselves, we not only stray away from God, but we yeah. do the church harm. Yes. Oh, and yeah. we use the church in ways that become destructive. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. Um, and it's all, I, I think the, the worst part about it is that um, it begins, I think, very earnestly. I think there's a, there's a real... A desire again for um, you know. So if you take any of those three things that I talked about, there can be a, a really legitimate desire to see uh, the gospel work its way into every facet of our lives, even the political. And so you know that begins as a a really valid and earnest a desire, but then the way that that develops and we go about that uh, can take a wrong turn. So, you know, to say, we're just going to take over this whole thing and, and do it the way that, you know, we think it should be done um, and make the church the government, uh, you, you know, it takes a turn in there somewhere. So it starts off with a, a, a real, I think, earnest and um, appropriate desire. All of these things do. So even the even when you think the fear of the other, I mean, that's, that is real. It's not, fear is something that... Um, is a part of us uh, for a reason. That's why we're still here today. So it's it's not, <laughs> you know, it's not a um, it, it's not a bad thing in and of itself all the time. But how do we how do we navigate it? How do we um, work through it? Uh, so even that I think is is legitimate and can be helpful. Um, you know, and certainly the zest for purity. Uh, you know, we are called to be holy people. But what does that what does that look like? How does Jesus demonstrate that? Well, he just says, you know, well, go ahead and throw the first rock, anybody who's ever, you know, uh, not done this before. So, you know, there's a there's a sense where holiness kind of get holiness and grace uh, are in this virtuous circle together where it's hard to understand sometimes where one stops and the other begins. And, and that's where uh, I think our zest for holiness can turn into a a zest for um, actual gospel being lived in the world, you know, uh, being hospitable, uh, being people of peace, being these other kinds of expressions of, of um, what purity and holiness look like uh, instead of uh, these uh, more, um, <clears throat> I guess, law-based kinds of uh, understandings uh, of that, which are passing away in terms of what Paul's saying. So, yeah, it's uh these are these are uh, great examples I think of um, you know what you talked about on Sunday uh, the benefits to the world uh, you know excellent and I think uh, these uh, how we kind of get it wrong um, you know kind of a great I, I think another great kind of uh, resource on this is um, Adam Adam Hamilton's uh, when Christians get it wrong which I think is a great a great book as well and it is of, a great book. Um, kind of treads along these lines as well. So right. if, you haven't, if you haven't checked that out, it's a good one um, as well. Yeah. 
Well, thank you for the opportunity to, to talk about this. Uh, My pleasure. Uh, you know, to the extent that we can um, embrace the good, yeah, we will um, mitigate against the forces of the bad and the ugly. I agree. And I hope we all make a concerted effort to do that. Yeah. Well, and we are, uh, we're glad that, uh, that, that you all have been listening today as well. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, if you have any questions or comments, so you can find that on uh, Facebook or email or any of those ways that uh, you always uh, can get a hold of us. And uh, we'll be back next week uh, with a deeper dive into Psalm 139. So until then, grace and peace. Mm-hmm.